have noticed over the course of the past six weeks or so has been to address a number of biblical themes pertinent to the situation in which we find ourselves. Who knows, maybe uh, we'll bundle these messages at some point down the road into some sort of, I don't know, the gospel in a pandemic-stricken world sermon series, something like that, when all's said and done. Thus far, we've looked at things like the sovereignty of God in the midst of uncertainty, Romans 8, the battle to overcome anxiety and more by God's grace, Philippians 4, the God who's present in the storm, establishing an anchor in the hearts of his people, Acts 27, the full and forever happiness that's offered to us in Jesus Christ, Psalm 16, the unshakable hope and unstoppable ministry that's ours because the tomb is empty, 1 Corinthians 15, the the lament gift that we've been given as we journey through this broken world on our way to glory, Psalm 13. You, You may be wondering, how long is he planning on keeping this up? How many sermons will ultimately and finally make up this COVID-19 sermon series when all's said and done? And, and all I know to tell you at this point is I've got at least two more, including this morning, two elements of the Christian life that present us with a, a sort of tension in which we're to live as we journey to this celestial city that awaits the people of God, namely present gratitude and future hope. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. That's where we'll be this morning. We're not gonna work our way through the fullness of both of those chapters, but we will be in both of them nonetheless. If you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible in your possession, as I've said for weeks now, uh, please find the leadership link on our church website, email one of our staff members and say, I don't own or possess a Bible, and we'll get a Bible two-day shipped to you so that you can have one in your possession, not just for moments like this when we gather, but each and every day as you wake up to be able to dive into and learn about more of who God is and what he's doing in this world in which we find ourselves, what he will do as we're gonna talk about this morning. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll go ahead and dive into the scriptures this morning. Father in heaven, we, we come to you this morning asking you to do a great work in our hearts. Would you fan into flame a a deeper longing for that which can and will only be fulfilled in the return of our good and glorious King, that the cry of our hearts might all the more as we leave our time this morning be amen, come Lord Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. So right out of the gate, I want to make sure to communicate something, namely that these next two weeks function as a sort of package deal as we talk about the both and of present gratitude and and future hope. That it would be one of the, the great tragedies of all time to have lived through a global pandemic without a newfound longing on the other side of it. A longing that absolutely nothing in this broken world can fill. A longing that can only be filled in the age to come. A couple of weeks ago, our community group had a fascinating conversation Uh, about the similarities and differences between us and wilderness-wandering Israel. As we find ourselves, perhaps many of us, looking back on our own proverbial Egypt, what was once a known variable for us in the not-so-distant past, while at the same time looking forward to, to something better, the land of milk and honey just over the horizon, walking in the midst of this desert of sorts, wondering what our coming out of this present wandering is gonna actually look like. One of the 
One of the dangers for us in the midst of this abnormal, discomforting season of life, it's that our Canaan would be far too small. The promised land in our minds being the reopening of coffee shops and restaurants, the ending of a shelter-in-place order, the embracing of loved ones that we haven't been able to be around for weeks now, the relaunching of collegiate and professional sports, the eradication of the virus itself, all good things, make no mistake, but none of them able to fulfill our deepest longings, which can and only will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. That's the focus of of this week's sermon as we work our way at rapid speed through these last couple chapters of the Bible, our future hope, the glory that awaits the children of God. That said, God never intended future hope to function as an enemy of present gratitude. The two are actually really good friends, in fact. We're meant to to feel a deep sense of longing for Canaan, this great happily ever after to come when Jesus returns, a longing that nothing in this world can can feel yes and amen to that, and we're meant to feel the deepest gratitude for God's kindness in the wilderness, the good gifts that come from the Father's hand in this present age as we await Jesus' return. That's the focus of next week's sermon assuming that the landscape doesn't change so drastically that we have to course correct between now and then. Present gratitude and future hope. Longing for the age to come and treasuring God by enjoying his gifts. I invite you to keep those two things in tension as we work our way through the next couple of weeks. This morning is all about the future hope that's ours in Jesus Christ, that glorious happily ever after that awaits the children of God. My prayer this morning is incredibly simple. My prayer this morning is that we would come away with a deeper longing for that future hope. The the book of Revelation, for those of you unfamiliar, begins with these words. Revelation chapter one, verses one through three says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The word revelation means an unveiling of unseen realities. Those who enjoy the final reveal on shows like Fixer Upper, this book of the Bible includes the, the great unveiling of the eternal kingdom of God. But if you've ever thought to yourself, I wonder what heaven must be like, we get a glimpse of it in this very book of the Bible. The book of Revelation, it's an unveiling of the king, an unveiling of his throne, an unveiling of his kingdom and his victory over evil, giving us a glimpse of everything sad coming untrue. Picking up in Revelation chapter 21, verse one, we're told, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The earliest chapters of the Bible declare, as many of you know, that creation itself was cursed as a result of sin's entrance into the world. To to use Paul's language in the famous chapter, Romans 8, subjected to futility, in bondage to corruption, groaning in the pains of childbirth. John sees something incredibly different here, a new heaven and a new earth, which isn't to say that God's gonna wipe out planet Earth and start over again. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, meaning that God's gonna redeem this world, 
that we're not gonna float off to some other world. Rather, God's gonna renew the, the entire created order as we know it. That when Jesus returns, creation itself will be transformed and freed from the effects of sin, adorned with adjectives, you might say, suited for eternity. For those of us who step out of our homes and see the, the beauty of nature and the, the warmth of the noonday sun, you think there's beauty in this world now? Just wait. God will someday redeem his original creation, which he pronounced good in the beginning, transforming it into an eternal dwelling for his people. John goes on to say, and the sea was no more. What does that mean for all of us beach lovers? What I, what I don't think it means is the doing away with the sea altogether on the basis, again, of Paul's declaration that all of creation, Romans 8, will be redeemed. You recall the story of creation, the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, verses 9 and 10, we're told, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. The sea, as God created it prior to man's rebellion, was good. Which is why I'm inclined to take John's language here in Revelation 21 to be symbolic. Symbolic of chaos, which is what we see elsewhere in the book of Revelation itself. The sea was a symbol of chaos for the Israelites. We know that because the, the one time that they had a navy under Solomon's reign, they outsourced their sailors to Tyre and Sidon. Remember the, the disciples' fear in the gospel accounts when they got caught in the middle of a great storm at sea? What, what John seems to be communicating here is that God's gonna take that great symbol of chaos and restore it to order. No more death, no more destruction. Rather, the new heaven and earth will be a place of peace, a place of stability. He goes on in verse two, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice that the new Eden is no longer a garden, but a city cultivated, prepared by God himself. That unlike Genesis 11, where man attempted to build a tower ascending to heaven for his own glory, here we see the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven for God's glory. You also get this language of bride and groom, this declaration that God's people will be in God's forever place in a forever covenant with him. Verse three, and I saw a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. No more hiding from God, no more running from God, no more proverbial fig leaves, no more guilt, no more shame that we who are in Christ will dwell with God with absolutely no fear of ever being banished from his glorious presence. We will be his forever people and he will be our forever God. Verse four, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Some of you, I've seen it with my own eyes, have had some really good cries lately over the fact that the world isn't as it should be. Going back to last week, there's a reason that laments are a part of the Bible. Not only that, this 
pandemic has brought about the realities of pain and death out from the peripheral edges of our view so that we see those realities daily in mass as we're presented with the data over and over again, daily, sometimes multiple times a day. What John sees is a world without lamenting. No more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. All those things that that make this world sad will be eradicated forever. And notice the language of intimacy here in verse four between God and his children that none of us will wipe away the final tear with our own sleeve. That God will personally wipe away the final tear of sorrow from each and every one of our eyes. How deep the Father's love for us, for you, for me. Verse five, it says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. How can we trust that all of this is gonna happen that God promises? It's because not only is he the alpha, the beginning, the one who, whose existence predates the foundations of our very world, but he's also the omega, the end, the consummator of all things. Another way we could say it, he's the first word and the last word on everything. He continues in verse six, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To use the language from a few weeks ago, no broken cisterns, no empty wells, only and forever living water, fully and eternally satisfied. A satisfaction that no man can buy, given without payment, verse six says, that we can bring every single one of our accomplishments to the feet of God and they will not buy us a ticket into the eternal kingdom. Jesus is the only hope for entrance. He lived the sinless, obedient life that we could never live. He died the sinner's death that we deserve to die. He rose from the grave triumphant. The only thing we bring to the table, you and I, is our sin. That for those who turn to Jesus in faith, the Bible says they shall be eternally satisfied. Verse seven, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Paul declares in Galatians 4 that the Christian is no longer a slave but a son, already declared a child of God. So what is John saying here? Well, the phrase will have this heritage, it can also be translated as will inherit all things. That John's language here is one of inheritance, fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17, soon to inherit all that is his, whatever that means. Verse eight, he continues, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You might ask, how in, the, how in the world is verse eight to be included in this idea of future hope? To which I would say, if God doesn't follow through with verse eight, then verses one through seven and really everything that follows verse eight, they're all empty promises. That you can't have a world with murderers, idolaters, liars, etc., and expect that world to look anything like 
the picture verses one through seven paint along with all the other verses continuing through this morning's passage that it's precisely by eradicating evil that God will bring about eternal peace and joy for his people. So that verse eight actually gives us hope that verses one through seven and the remainder of this morning's passage will in fact come true. He continues in verse nine. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Here John gives us a detailed description of the eternal city and her inhabitants. And notice the first descriptor in verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The first descriptor of the celestial city is the glory of God. Radiant like a most rare jewel, he says. Jasper, it's a... It's a semi-transparent stone. It allows light to pass through while diffusing that light so that what's on the other side isn't clearly visible, kind of like a stained glass window. We're talking about a description of something so stunning, this light-refracting brilliance that to move an inch to the left, an inch to the right, a foot to the left, a foot to the right, it just doesn't matter because to move it all is to change the entire experience without diminishing the radiance at all. In other words, if you've ever thought that heaven is going to be boring, you've thought wrongly that we will never grow bored in the eternal kingdom of God. Never. We will be fully and forever stunned by the brilliance of God's glory. John continues in verse 12, it had this city, a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. That according to these verses, you need not fear that your experience of being stunned by the brilliance of God's glory will ever be disrupted. The city itself guarded by a host of angels. Not that the protection is necessary as evil will have been cast away forever. However, that high wall, that angelic guard, they will always and forever remind us that we're safe. Tell me that's not good news for those who struggle with anxiety those tired of being overcome by the crippling effects of fear, that there will not be one anxious thought in the eternal kingdom of God. Not one. There's a lot more to the imagery associated with these verses and many of the other verses we're gonna look at this morning. I wish I had more time, but I don't. So we're just gonna continue on. Verse 15 says, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls and the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Apparently we in angels measure things the same way according to the book of Revelation. 
Even if you set aside the symbolism of these verses and you take them literally, think about this for a second, 12,000 stadia, that's the equivalent to roughly 1,400 miles or the distance between New York City and Miami. Imagine if every square inch of terrain between those two cities was urbanized and that's just north-south. Take that same mileage and then go east-west with it. That's a, that's a massive city in the shape of a perfect cube, John tells us, just like the Holy of Holies in both the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, except now immensely larger. That the Holy of Holies, it, it was part of the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, it was the, the place that only the high priest could enter as many of you know, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. When Jesus died on the cross, we're told that the veil separating man from the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. Jesus having removed every obstacle standing in the way between sinners and a holy God that we might dwell in the presence of God forever. That, that what John is communicating here is that the eternal city, it is the Holy of Holies. John's gonna tell us in verse 22, just a couple of verses from now, that he doesn't see a temple. And that's because the entire city itself is the dwelling place of God. He says in verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, sixth carnelian, seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Not just another declaration of God's beauty, God's majesty, God's splendor, though that's true, 12 jewels listed here are not unlike the 12 stones that were part of the high priest's breastplate in the book of Exodus. In other words, not only, going back to verse 16, will we someday dwell in the eternal holy of holies, but we will forever have the kind of access to God which once solely belonged to the high priest. He says in verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb and the city. It has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. There's no temple because God is present in all of his fullness in and throughout the entire city. The radiance of his glory making sun, moon, and stars non-essential. That, that noonday sun into which none of us can stare for more than a second or two Nothing more than a keychain flashlight in comparison to the glory of God. He says in verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, the cultural melting pot of the redeemed. Imagine the food alone, representative of that ethnic diversity. Even those of us with picky taste buds will have our taste buds glorified someday so that we might enjoy it all. 
Imagine the the stories of redemption spanning the globe, spanning human history, as we listen in on the stories of God's redemptive work in all of our lives, crossing all of those various global lines in the sand to redeem his people. He says in verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will know this full and forever joy that we're talking about this morning. Only those who have put their trust in Jesus, the innocent one slain for sinners, you're not a Christian, I invite you this morning to turn to him, to put your trust in him, to give your life to him, to declare him to be your savior, to proclaim him to be your king. John goes on in chapter 22. We'll look at just a few verses here in this final chapter of the Bible. Verse one says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. If Revelation 21 is the panoramic high altitude view of the new heaven and earth, Revelation 22, you could call that the zoom lens version of it all. It's the exact same thing that that God does in the first two chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 being the panoramic high altitude uh, version of the story of creation, sun, moon, and stars, planet earth, the water separated from the skies, all those things. And then Genesis 2, you zoom things in on the Garden of Eden, God's people in covenant with him. Same thing here in the final two chapters of the Bible, declaring God to be the creative and brilliant storyteller that he truly is. First thing that we see as the the camera zooms in is a river, reminding us of the river that flowed out of Eden in Genesis 2 when when all was perfect, utopian bliss. Notice the source of the river, the throne of God, the center and source of every eternal blessing, his glory forever reflected in the the water, bright as crystal. He says also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Another reminder of Eden, the tree of life. Remember when man was banished from the garden in the wake of sin, Genesis 3, how a cherubim was placed with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life? Well, now the tree is back. What was once off limits is now eternally ours to nourish us, to sustain us as we enjoy making much of God forever. The leaves of that tree, an eternal reminder that pain and death shall be no more. One thing that that you can say for certain out of a verse like this, you cannot have a global pandemic in a world in which the nations are healed. He continues in verse three, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Again, the reminders of Eden, they just keep coming. That the curse that was once pronounced upon our first parents and creation itself, that in the eternal kingdom of God, nothing will be accursed. Jesus became a curse for us so that we might experience nothing but eternal blessing. He says in verse four, mind-blowing, and they will see his face. But according to the book of Exodus, 
Moses couldn't see the Lord's face and expect to survive the experience. But someday we will. We will see God's face, glory of glories. And he continues to say, and his name will be on their foreheads. No chance of a repeat of what happened in Eden, marked as God's eternal possession, never to be snatched from his hand. Verse five, and night, it will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will will reign forever and ever. Again, the glory of God lighting up the celestial city like the 4th of July as we finally and perfectly do what we were made to do, what we were created to do. Man was designed to rule over creation, to exercise dominion, to subdue the earth. Here we see human beings experiencing the fullness of what they were made for, reigning with God forever as glorified priest kings. Verse six, he says, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. It's fascinating how everything comes together with this perfect artistry, this redemptive story for the ages that God is telling. What are the words that set the stage back in the very first chapters of the Bible, for everything to come unraveled in the paradise of Eden. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say? The book of Revelation, particularly here, chapter 22, verse six, is a declaration that God has spoken and that what he has said can be trusted. The word of our God, it will stand forever. Verse seven closes with these words, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He's coming soon. The, the Christian life, it's a life of expectation. It's a life of anticipation. It's a life lived believing that Jesus could return anytime and an excitement at the thought. Living in the, the here and now as if at a moment's notice we will see his face and allowing that vision of what's to come to inform the present, the way we live our very lives. As John goes on to say in verse 20, amen, come Lord Jesus. Let me, let me say this because I think some of us perhaps need to hear it. Canaan is not whatever lies on the other side of this pandemic. Canaan is not whatever lies on the other side of this shelter-in-place order. There are certainly good gifts to gratefully enjoy, both now and in the weeks and months to come. We'll talk about that next week, treasuring God by enjoying his gifts, not taking those things for granted. But my prayer is, particularly this morning, is that we would come out of this experience in which we all find ourselves with a deeper longing that can only be filled in the coming of the King. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our Canaan. He's our Canaan.